You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unsung Heroes, stories to inspire here on Podcast Detroit. I am your host, Dr. Saba Maruf, and we're back with episode 36. Um, our purpose here is to share amazing stories and unique narratives of individuals who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. And we truly hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. You can find us on Facebook where you can find our posts about all our past episodes as well as um, on the website podcastdetroit.com and, um, and we're on iTunes as well. Um, I want to welcome my co-host Calvin Moore. Hey. hey Calvin, how are you? I'm good. It feels like it's been a long time since we did this. Did we do one last week? Well, we did one two weeks. Was it two weeks two ago weeks for ago. Our, our one year anniversary? One year. Oh yeah, yeah, it was just me and you. Yeah, it was so cool. That was a lot <laughs> that of fun. Kind of fun. It's a good episode. Yeah. So thank you and thanks, Calvin, for he actually really was instrumental in putting everything together for us today. You're welcome. But I have some bad news. What? I have some bad news. Uh, so this isn't my last time being the co-host. I'm still going to be co-host a lot. Okay. Uh, but they're tearing up the highway by my house for the oh, summer. Oh no! Oh man! So it's going to be a, it's gonna be a nightmare getting oh. here. And I literally live. They're 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 tearing up. Since we're doing this in Michigan, uh, they're tearing up the highway, starting at I ninety four. Oh god! Yeah, and going all the way up to I seventy five. And my house oh, is really? literally right, right behind there. the sound barrier where ninety four and six ninety six come together. So they're tearing up six ninety six all the way up to seventy five and. That's pretty much my whole ride. Oh here. no! Yeah. It's well, sad. you do your show on Wednesdays, so that's my show's be... on Wednesdays. So I'm going to still try to get here on Fridays. Okay. It's my hope. Well, I'll just make sure that we know ahead of time and everything. Yeah, I have to come oh, like man, two hours days. early. To get <laughs> yeah, here. not do less last minute thing today. Uh, thank you. Actually, was a little bit last minute, but I'm really excited. Um, I'm really fortunate because actually we have a very long overdue guest who is an inspiring figure locally and nationally as well as internationally. Inspiring. Inspiring. No. Okay. I know this well, guy. Yeah, I know. Okay, this is right. the thing. You've been wanting to get him on for so long, and I was just a little, he's like my big brother. He's my big brother. So I was just a little bit like, I don't know, this little show that I have. <laughs> but anyway, I'm super excited to introduce Saeed Khan. Thank you big for bro. having me on, finally, <laughs> both of you. And uh, congratulations on having your show hit the 30s. <laughs> and I remember what it was like once to be in my 30s. And, uh, <laughs> and, and for your musical choice, I mean, Chainsmokers and Coldplay. <laughs> Somebody once very wise said that uh, chain smokers were uh, to electronic music what Nickelback was to music. Oh, so wow, <laughs> but, that's yeah. insulting. Yeah. I know, but yeah. but 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 you know they've got they've got Coldplay to kind of. Uh, Here's the deal, it. though. Nickelback gets a bad rap. Creed gets a bad rap. But I'm going. Both those bands went triple platinum. So there's enough people out there that like, like them, them that are pretending and to I not have to like say, them. The song's been this uh, show's been on for a year, and I picked the song last year before it was on the radio all the time. Now it's not on the radio anymore. Now it's mostly NF. Okay, whoever yes. that guy is. Yeah, who's that? He's a hip hop artist. Don't have any other. I've heard of You've this heard dude named Khalid. Oh yeah, he's, well yes, I know about Khalid. Yeah, he's he's one of three Khalids. There's DJ Khalid, there's mm-hmm. Khalid the Arab, and then there's Khalid who sings American Teen. Huh? 
Yeah. This is what happens well, your when your daughter you, loves. This is what happens when you teach college. <laughs> yeah, I know. Where <laughs> you, know you, 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 you have to sort of, you know, stay ahead. And when people have never heard of the Beatles when you're teaching them and you go, oh my God. Ooh. Yeah. It's, yeah, you it's just quit. It's getting worse and worse. It used to be all right because there would be like a Beatles song in like a Shrek movie. And people <laughs> would hear that and like, oh yeah, we've heard of that band. Are they still around? I'm like, you know, Shrek. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's a Trolls movie. Like, my daughter loves, like, all the movies, songs from the Trolls movie. I have to say the um, True Colors is actually Let's just be honest, pretty though, good m- rendition. Movies like that are just vehicles <laughs> for, for, the parents. for well, well, for pop music. The Chipmunks came out, and it was to get people to buy that music for their kids. It was really just... It's a merchandising yeah. thing. Yeah, but, merchandising. You, know, for, yeah. you know, for for people like Sabah and me, you know, from South Asia, to, to get all indignant about this would be wrong because Bollywood is really a vehicle for the songs from those movies. So our parents, uh, probably growing up, they might have questioned why you're listening to Chainsmokers and Coldplay. (laughs) And uh, they have to realize that they had this musical taste, which was entirely born of movies that they were watching. Mm -hmm. And, of course, denying that they watched them. See, this is why we wanted him on, because he's so (laughs) smart. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Read his his bio. We haven't even read your bio yet. So, and I'm trying to truncate it as I speak, but it's hard. Um, Saeed Khan is currently in the Department of History and Lecture as, and is a senior lecturer in the Department of Near East and Asian Studies at Wayne State University. And he teaches Islamic and Middle East history, Islamic civilizations, and history of Islamic political thought. And he is also a research fellow at the at Wayne State's um, Center for the Study of Citizenship and an adjunct professor in Islamic Studies at the University of Detroit Mercy and at Rochester College, where he co-teaches a course on Muslim Christian diversity. And where I met Calvin. That's where he yeah, met me that's ten, right. ten years ago. Wow. 11, 11 years ago now at yeah. this point. Yeah, geez. So actually, here's another. Yeah, when we actually, the first time I was in the studio was with Saeed when yeah. you were on the show, too. You guys were on my show. Yeah, yeah. we were on your show. Come full circle. questions now. This is our last episode. <laughs> huh? This is our last episode of the show. We've come full circle. Oh, yeah. Completing, <laughs> like, completing the circle. Um, but it's movie- not the last episode. <laughs> yeah, Don't like, start what? crying. Construction and now this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, with areas of uh, Saeed Khan, um, his areas of focus include U.S. policy, globalization, Middle East and Islamic studies, as well as genomics and bioethics. And he's been a contributor to several media agencies such as C-SPAN, NPR, Voice of America, and the National Press Club, as well as... Um, multiple newspapers and other outlets. He's a consultant on Islam, Islamic and Middle East affairs for the BBC and the CBC. And ad- in addition, he served as a consultant to the U.S. Arab Economic Forum. And he has founded the Center for the Study of Transatlantic Diasporas, which is a think tank and policy center examining and comparing the condition of ethnic immigrant groups in North America and Europe, um, consulting the U.S. and U.K. governments on their respective Muslim communities. Well, I didn't even know that. Most you have no idea how to I, truncate a bio, do you? No, I don't. No, I don't. Everything, every <laughs> Everything's so that. cool, right? Exactly. That's this why. This guy does a lot more than us. All yeah, right. I know. Most recently, Mr. Khan has become co- – I did not know this until I read this now. He's become co-host of the radio show Detroit Today on Detroit Detroit Public Radio. It's a little bit of an older bio. I mean, oh, now sorry, Stephen Anderson has taken over, but that's okay. Okay. Yeah. So very recently he was doing that. Yeah. So, wow. Um, and like I said, I've known him forever and – um, his wife and I are always exchanging books and I just gave him one now. His kids babysit my kids and we just, and he's going to Iceland with my husband in a month. See, I don't get the memo on half these things. So they're doing what? <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. You know, he was there at my house like all summer last year. Right. But okay. <laughs> um, but welcome, Saeed. We're so happy to have you. Thanks again, Seba. So what's your story? 
Lots of my story. Well, you just read. Yeah, I feel like you just read it. Besides that, besides the written version. Uh, Well, first of all, I mean, I'm flattered because I don't consider myself to be a hero, and I certainly don't consider myself to be unsung. Uh, You don't want to hear my singing. Uh, (laughs) But as far as a story goes, you know, I I think it's it's probably not too different from a lot of uh, maybe uh, immigrant experiences. Uh, I was born in, in Pakistan, never lived there, uh, actually grew up in, in the UK, uh, lived there for eight years, moved to New York in 1975 at the age of eight, and uh, people asked me what happened to my accent. I lost it on the playground of PS197 in Queens because back in the mid-70s, having a British accent at the age of eight and being kind of scrawny uh, made people wonder why I was speaking like a posh Puerto Rican uh, with, with an English accent because at, at that point nobody knew what a Pakistani was in New York I know that's hard to believe today <laughs> especially if you go to Jackson Heights um, moved to Houston for a year and a half after spending a couple in New York and then moved to the buzzing metropolis of Lapeer, Michigan Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right around the time of the Iranian Revolution. And so you could tell that kids were hearing words that they didn't understand when you'd go down the hall in eighth grade and people yelled Ayatollah at you. And back in eighth grade, I'm not sure I knew what an Ayatollah was either, but had to learn. Um, Went to high school there. Uh, Parents still live there and uh, went off to Michigan for my undergrad degree, uh, which was medieval literature. Uh, ended up going to law school, practiced law for about a decade, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, the trauma of 9-11, I know you and I have spoken about where you were and uh, what you were going through back then. Uh, for me, it was a matter of realizing that this was an opportunity to get a seat at the table and keep a seat at the table. I was not really happy with the way that People were talking about or talking down to or uh, talking against Islam and the Muslim community. And so you had this response from the Muslim American community, which was by and large still trying to get over being deer caught in the headlights, to have to on the on demand, whether they were in the checkout line at a grocery store, whether they're at work, whether they're at school, have to be – Johnny on the spot, theologians, philosophers, economists, anthropologists, historians, political scientists, legal experts, and everything in between about Islam. And that's just simply too tall of an order for people to have to handle. Uh, At the same time, you heard people on the media, um, especially Muslims, who were either total apologists or who were really rancorous, neither of whom were really being able to engage properly. Uh, around here in the metro Detroit area, there were a lot of open houses of mosques. There was a lot more of a PR effort to try to have people understand uh, Islam and Muslims. And so uh, I sort of got thrown into that uh, inadvertently, uh, giving talks, getting invited to give talks. And then one uh, afternoon, I was actually at the mosque in Rochester Hills with Will, with 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 your uh, uh, with your brother-in-law, with uh, with Iltifat, and um, we were both asked to be part of this open house. And afterwards, it just sort of dawned on me. I said, "You know, I've got an idea." And I said, "You want to meet for lunch the next day?" And we met at a big boy in Shelby Township. I don't even know if that big boy still exists. Probably but, not. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I said, "Hey, I've got an idea," and I've known I've known Iltifat for forever. And I said, what do you think about putting together a think tank? And a think tank which can then hold that seat at the table 
and can go ahead and show that what is important for Muslim Americans and what is of benefit to Muslim Americans is also of benefit to America as a whole. And that is how the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding was launched, which is now still uh, the only think tank which looks at the Muslim American experience and comes up with good and hard data, which uh, uh, in this era of fake news is even more important. And so we are now 17, 18 years down the line with this uh, organization, which was really fortunate to be able to put together with some good and close friends and uh, seem to show that it has a, a benefit. Now, in, in that process, I realized that it would be helpful for me to go back into academics in order to then reinforce what we were doing with the think tank. Had the opportunity to go to Wayne State, get a master's in uh, in Near East and Asian Studies, and then move on into uh, more uh, graduate work in the area of history. Got an opportunity to get onto faculty, and uh, the rest, as historians say, <laughs> is history. So let's uh, wow. let's talk a little bit about that, though. Um, in terms of okay, you've got this think tank, uh, getting a, a degree. Uh, Around history will kind of shore that up, but when when most people think about religion, they they think of going to a house of worship or they think of uh, individual spirituality, right? Um, especially in America, they don't think about going to school. Most well, most people I know, unless it's well, Sunday school, right? Yeah, Sunday school, right? Um, in in addition to kind of shoring up the think tank, uh, are there any other reasons why you chose to pursue religion academically? Well. If you're going to provide clarity for people, you have to kind of know what you're talking about first. And if you're putting together a thing – It's 2018. Tank, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dude, this was 2001. You know, right, right, when, right. When, when the only crisis we had was 9-11. Right. Didn't have social media yet to, to yeah. exacerbate things. Can you wow. imagine what yeah. things would have been yeah. like if, it, you know, if, if that was tweeted? Uh, well, back then I felt mm. that if we are going to have as our mission – providing greater clarity and we were being seen as both a religious community and as a racial community as the Muslim American community really was and how it was being discussed and debated, then it was important to move beyond the kinds of conversations that I was hearing. And as a result of that, I said – and I think part of this was also – and you and I, Calvin, have talked about this. We're both hardwired to come to our religion through the lens of critical thinking and academics. Yes. And I certainly don't want to go ahead and disparage anybody who is, for lack of better terms, a true believer. I mean, for them, their spirituality is is really a driving force. It is something that is lived. It is something that is expressed. And after years of realizing that, that's just not how I come to my religious understanding. I felt that it was more important for me to then take on the academic uh, approach. It was, it was my happy place. It was my natural state. It was my default state. And so it was a matter of then leveraging what I found to be the most uh, accurate, uh, the, the, the clearest way uh, and the language by which I could then uh, engage with religion and, of course, re um, engage with others uh, in, that, in that process. Okay. Do you, this is kind of off script, but do you ever feel – I mean have you ever felt in, in your journey that – it's not – they're definitely not mutually exclusive. But I I mean the study of – with the study of Islam in particular, when you have a lot of discussion and historically too, the Orientalist view, I mean how, how do you feel like that affects 
your own understanding or your own spirituality and has it. You know what I mean? So part of it, Saba, is I think having the honesty to say that we are in some way, shape or form orientalists, all of mm-hmm. us. There's no way that you can go through uh, a an education curriculum uh, in the West or let's face it, in, in, in some part of the world that has been influenced by the West without in some way being an Orientalist. Uh, if you come to the table with that realization, it makes it a lot easier because you're not, you're not being dishonest to yourself. You're, you're not in a, sen- in, in a sense of denial. The challenge then comes, what does that really mean? Can we unpack that? Can we tweeze that apart? And it's not just Orientalism, uh, something that Calvin and I have talked about before and something I've mentioned in, um, in, in classes that he's taken at Rochester College. Uh, one of the things that I've, I was very fortunate about is uh, to be able to guest lecture at Rochester College s- starting soon after 9-11 and then developing this Christian Muslim dialogue class with uh, Keith Huey and John Barton who were, uh, who were faculty members there. John has since left to uh, the rather more climatologically boring uh, part of the country, Malibu, California yeah. and Pepperdine. Yeah. <laughs> He's left the rest of us with you know snow in April, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, this this idea then of uh, of looking at uh, at religion and realizing that growing up in England, growing up in America, I grew up culturally Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no escaping that, and and in fact, if anything, it wasn't incompatible with my uh, Islamic upbringing. It was just simply uh, a different way of setting your watch, so to speak. Your, your 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 days of the week, your holidays are all pegged to Christmas and uh, and Easter. And if you want to take uh, Eid off, then you kind of have to make a special dispensation. And sometimes you don't get it. And so while everyone else is at the mosque, you're taking a midterm exam. Uh, that was just something that was part of the fabric of, of, of childhood and growing up. And, uh, and it was an organic process then to see how that has evolved since then. Uh, when I look now critically and academically at what Orientalism is, you know, a term that Edward Said uh, made so famous back in the 70s mm-hmm. with his seminal work, uh, you realize that we're still part of a, an ongoing process. I mean, everyone is part of this journey that you're talking about. And it's not just a journey that is the subjects of Orientalism, meaning uh, Muslims or people from the East. It's also a journey that Western uh, minds are are going through. What does it really mean for them to be non-Orientalist? Uh, what does it mean for them not to be part of the Orient? Because of globalization now, I don't know where the Orientalist world begins and where the other mm. world ends. That's true. So everything now, it seems, is made in China. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's this kind of uh, – you and I, again, we've talked about – I think there's going to be a phrase that's said a lot in this uh, in this episode. You and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, but – I know – I mean you know I'm a Christian and so I was part of that Christian-Muslim dialogue in the class that you were coming in to teach with, with John Barton and Keith Huey uh, who are great professors of mine. And I still go and see Keith Huey from time to time when I have uh, religious questions and uh, he frustrates me but in a good way. <laughs> Love you, Keith. Anyhow, <laughs> I, the way I look and, and conceive of religious education, when I went into school, uh, I came out of a tradition that said, you know – and. It's not the only tradition that says this, but many do. Mine did. Uh, you know, why are you going to school for that? You know, 
why don't you just let you know the Holy Spirit guide you? Why don't you let Him give you the answers to to your religious questions? Why do you have to go get all this head knowledge? Um, people would say, "Oh, seminary. Uh, that's that's where your faith goes to die. It's that's why it rhymes with cemetery. You know that kind of deal." <laughs> and so, my th- my thought is though, I am wired like you are wired in a way, but I'll confess to people. I don't know that without the academic pursuit of religion that I would still be religious. Uh, it is probably the main thing that keeps me holding on. And you used that term a few moments ago of, you know, true believer, you know, the true believer. Uh, and that, I think, has crossover within Christianity as well. You know, you have all your head knowledge, but I'm a true believer. I have actually experienced this. I walk through this day to day. So uh, my question for you would be, uh, you're wired the way that you're wired, Without the academic pursuit, do you think that you would still follow Islam? I would. I just would not follow it nearly uh, the same way as I do now. Okay. One of the things that the academic pursuit allows me to do is it helps really keep that line of demarcation. I don't confuse belief and knowledge. Mm-hmm. What I know is not necessarily what I believe and what I believe is not necessarily what I know. And I think that sometimes people will go ahead and confuse the two. And you hear this happening in debates all the time. They're like, well – this is what uh, Islam says and on a particular topic. I'm like, well, no, that's actually a belief. Uh, you don't know. And I'm not going to go ahead and try to rub anybody's rhubarb, so to speak, when it comes to <laughs> what they believe. Right. Uh, but if we're going to have a discussion about knowledge, let's go ahead and keep these things on the same, on the same plane. Um, Anna Marie Schimmel, who was a great uh, Islamic scholar, uh, she once said that the big challenge when people are engaged in interfaith dialogue is that they compare one person's ideal with the other person's reality. And this was something that I noticed was happening a lot in 9-11, mm-hmm. that people were finding the absolute worst narratives about Islam and Muslims right. and comparing them to something which I had to consider was an ideal uh, when it came to either uh, Christology uh, or uh, even Western history. And I said, yeah, this isn't really helpful. And particularly when you're a historian, you know where all the skeletons are buried. And I wasn't looking to get into academics just to show people up and say, aha, these are the, this is my list of gotcha talking points. But to move beyond that, to find some way of saying, you know, Let's go ahead and realize that there's something different than looking at it from the extremism of a debate which neither one of us is going to go ahead and win. But to find some kind of common ground because that seems to be getting lost day by day. Okay. I remember walking uh, around campus those days and months after 9-11 and um, for example, like there was just random – this random flyer posted on a bulletin board. It was – basically like, oh, well, you think you know about Islam? And it just had like a bunch of verses, just totally out of context, just cut and paste verses of the Quran. Um, and I looked at those and I was like, wow, actually that is in the Quran. And I I mean, just, I think many Muslims, you know, as you mentioned, kind of were in this position where it's like, okay, well, let's go in, let's go back and, okay, yeah, this is a verse from the Quran, but there's a whole context here. There's a whole right. story behind this. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you didn't see flyers saying, you think you know what Christianity yeah. is? And cherry picking those verses exactly. out as well without Literally context, true. right? We, we had the good fortune around here of having an intellectual who really opened up our minds. And this was Munir Farid who was my mentor for um, uh, early on at Wayne State. He's since moved on, and now he's at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's actually from South Africa. 
But he used to also be the imam at our mosque, and he used to have a monthly book club. And he used to really challenge us Mm -hmm. critically by using uh, books that we otherwise wouldn't have necessarily considered. And I remember when I was taking uh, graduate courses with him at Wayne State, he would uh, say that there is going to be, for a lot of your uh, you Muslim students, a moment of reckoning where you are going to really be challenged. And I would see, because I was used to him, I mean, he was snarky and, you know, that was a kindred spirit uh, that, I, that I had with him. And I don't even know how much of him now uh, is in me when I teach. I mean, this is kind of like Harry Potter getting the mm-hmm. uh, the little uh, you know scar on the forehead <laughs> i i have a feeling that munir farid is is a horcrux inside me for those of you who are harry potter fans uh, but one of the things that he would do is he would be provocative he would talk about something and the muslim students would reflexively uh, feel the need to challenge him. And mm-hmm. this is a man who not only got a, a classical Islamic education overseas, but uh, but his PhD at U of M in, in Islamic studies. So he really bridged both of those worlds, which fascinated me. And I see, I see you kind of walking that out now because I've sat in on a few of your classes at Wayne State and I've seen that reflexive act. I mean, like, You'll be talking about something and I'll have no idea about it because it's not my history. But like Muslim students, will be, wait, wait, wait. Yep. Wait, wait, yep. wait. Like, oh, yeah. OK. And then, and then you notice me sort of like, uh, you know, uh, rubbing my, my hands together <laughs> saying fresh meat. Yes. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> but, but the idea of then uh, getting the students to deconstruct what many of them, let's face it, learned around the dinner table from a grandparent or in, in a, a weekend school – to go to those verses to understand, yes, these are there because oftentimes what would happen is the reflexive things like, nope. In a way, here's the irony. Muslims after 9-11 became kind of proto-fake news advocates because their reflexive thing was to say, oh, no, no, that's not what the Quran says. It's fake news. And when they were confronted with mm. the text, they had no wiggle room to get out of that. And so it's really important then to – know more Mm -hmm. so that you can then not only contextualize it but then say, yeah, you know what? We have to also reconcile this. These aren't just talking points in a debate. How do we feel as Muslims to know that we've got this verse in the Quran? And, you know, the Quran doesn't come with perforated pages that you can just sort of tear out and say, well, here the shelf life is gone and let's go ahead and update it or, or say pretend it never happened. You really have to deal with it. And getting the academic education really, really helped in that. And I still see the challenges, uh, as, as you did and uh-huh. sitting in on some of my classes, that um, because of the aversion that so many people have to critical thinking, they just don't know how to deal with this. And I'll give you an example. So first day of class in uh, an introduction to Islam class or one of my um, history of Islamic empires, which is the first in sort of a three-segment history track – I'll always ask the same question and most of my classes because of the demographics here at Wayne State is 50% Muslim, 50% not. And uh, I'll ask the question, when did Islam emerge? And there will usually be a Muslim student who will try to sound all Arabic, uh, use, use perfect pronunciation and, and they'll say, uh, well, when God uh, went ahead and began the universe and I'll say, yeah, how about – Islam as an identifiable historical, social, political phenomenon. 
And then somebody will say, well, when the prophet, peace be upon him, was born, or someone will say when he received the first revelation, or as Muslims will say, the first year of the Islamic calendar when uh, the Muslims migrated to, uh, to Medina. I said, okay, so we're basically talking early 7th century. Then I'll ask the question, where did it emerge? And to a letter, some Muslim will raise a hand and say, Saudi Arabia. I'm like, yeah, pal, Saudi didn't come into Arabia until 1932. <laughs> uh, but, I get, but I get your point. And so now what you find is this interesting dynamic because the Muslims are like, oh, man, if this is going to be the level of inquiry in this class, we've got this thing aced. And it's almost then like a turf war that they look over to the non-Muslims and like, you know, we've got this going on and you're at a, you're at a bit of a disadvantage. And then I'll say, OK, let me ask you two more questions. Why did it emerge then and why did it emerge there? And oftentimes a Muslim student will say uh, in the Arabic, wallahu alam, because God willed it and God knew best. I'm like, okay, that that can help at a seminary. But what about – let's humor me uh, that we're at a level one uh, you know, secular research university and silence. And then usually a non-Muslim will raise his or her hand and say – you think maybe we should look at the social, political, cultural, and economic milieu of Western Arabia in the 7th century? I said, yes. Now let's go ahead and start the class. And at this point, you see some of the blood drain from the faces mm-hmm. of the Muslim students because like we've never done this. We've never been taught to do this. In fact, we've been taught the other that don't question it. Just accept your Islam categorically. And that's where the journey begins for a lot of people. And And that's the kind of thing that I think resonates with someone like me most. This is why I always tell people because I think Christians deal with this same thing. I mean, I got to you know, I got to school and you, you grow up and you got Sunday school and you don't realize, I mean, again, you're walk, you're walking around on campus and you see the the flyer mm-hmm. that says, you think you know Islam, check out these verses. And you haven't been taught to reconcile those things, right? You haven't been taught about the the context. And most Christians, their their knee-jerk reaction is, well, you know, that was the Old Testament. Like, yeah, it was the Old Testament, it still happened. So how do you deal with it? And I think you get to college or you get to seminary and all of a sudden you start dealing with these stories that weren't even necessarily avoided. They were just completely sanitized. I always use the example of of Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is a great story because it's a story about Noah getting all the animals and God saving Noah and his family from the flood and and restarting humanity. And it's, it's really cool because it's a story of a floating zoo. But you're literally telling children a story of mass xenocide where God kills everybody on the planet, probably a few million people on the planet, maybe even more than that at that time, and eight people survive, right? And so it's like now you get to college and you have to deal with like what do you deal – you know, how do you deal with a God who kills everybody? Like, oh, I never, I never thought about that. But those aren't things that are brought up against Christians so much. But we've got that those those difficulties to deal with as well. We've just never been taught to deal with it because we've sanitized the stories and made them kid friendly. I mean, look, I mean, David killed Goliath, chopped off his head, and had a ticker tape parade down the middle of the city. That's never the story they tell. It's like he killed Goliath, and that was it. Like, huh? He beheaded the man as well, and then Game of Thrones style. What? But you never hear those kind of things. Those are those are difficulties we need to deal with. Where God's okay with people being killed, God's okay with killing all the people Himself, and then you get into this situation, the academia, where you're like, okay, how do I think critically about these 
massive parts of our faith? Or how do I deal with these verses that fly in the face of everything we believe in 2018 about the world, how we should treat other human beings? So that 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 kind of thing really resonates with me. Well, look at look at the look at the linear progression that people will then say. Critical thinking then leads to criticism. Criticism then is coupled with disrespect, which then when you're dealing with religion is heresy and blasphemy, mm-hmm. which is then sin. I mean, this is usually what then goes through the Cartesian thinking mm-hmm. about people. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can go ahead and have a discussion. You can disagree and you can, you could, you don't have to be disrespectful about it. Happens all the time in your, your most normal of relationships that you have. But this then becomes a firewall for people who don't want to put in the intellectual heavy lifting or and or I should say they are in positions of power that they want to monopolize. And so I hear this from some Muslim scholars who will go off on these screeds saying, oh, you know, critical thinking is is a Western construct and it's in fact meant to go ahead and, and keep us down kind of as a counter-Orientalist uh, uh, argument. And I'm like, you got to be out of your mind. First of all, because it's the only thing that's going to work and give you some kind of equal footing as Muslims in this country, given the small population, given the relative marginalization, uh, and given just how fervent and toxic the discourse can be. If you don't have critical thinking and if you're just going to sit there and suck your thumb and say, oh, you know what, we're just going to all hold hands and say we're a religion of peace – yeah, that's not really going to work. You're going to become an endangered species sooner rather than later. I think that was one of the first questions I asked you 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I met you. And I think I – much to uh, your credit for the way you've told your, the story of uh, having uh, Muslim students and the way I've told the story as if I wasn't the, the Christian student who had the knee jerk <laughs> and the hand up because I was the Bible quizzer as a kid. I knew all <laughs> the right answers. But that was my first question of you I think was, um, OK, all right, all right. Is Islam a religion of peace or is it a religion of war? And your answer was yes. And I just went tilt because I, I had, I had, <laughs> I had no idea how to accept that answer. I thought it was going to be one or the other from him and either or. And then he asked me several questions after that that I hadn't thought through because I didn't know anything about Islam. I just knew my catch all question yeah. that a lot of Christians want to ask to trap. Muslim people. Well, you know, oh, it, yeah. it didn't help that you asked a question like Mick Jagger. I mean, what was up with that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. I mean, there's there's a fear factor that people want an answer. They want a bright line to these questions. They don't want nuance. They either don't have time for it, or let's face it. I mean, sometimes it can really be a painful thing to have to sift through and and, and catch that subtlety. So, so here's a here's a question on that then, because. I know. I mean, just in again, our our private conversations about the differences in uh, Islamic thought and Christian thought. I think Christian thought, in terms of like being shaped by modernity and post-modernity, wanting those answers. This is why apologetics is so big within Christianity. Like, there is an answer to your questions. I've heard all the time. Oh, just because you throw that Trump card out there, oh, something you think there's not an answer to doesn't mean there's not an answer. But there is a presumption within Christianity that there's an answer to pretty much every question, right? And I think that's been my frustration in some of our conversations because I, I want an answer about Islam. You're like, you know, it doesn't necessarily work that exact same way. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's, that's fascinating. But I think, I mean, you've expressed that Muslim students are pretty much the same as Christian students, but I do know within Christian thought there is a 
desire to have an answer to every question. And the longer you sit and think about it, an answer an answer will present itself, and that's very important. If it doesn't, clearly, clearly, and I yeah. mean, I, 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 and again, I think I, uh, I, w- I would say that Muslim students are are no different. But this whole idea about that there is an answer to every question, I think what we sometimes forget is that perhaps sometimes that answer is in fact another question. Mm-hmm. And so to go all Socratic on you, um, there is this idea then that it is a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is something that doesn't necessarily reveal or present itself right away. And then, of course, we also have to realize that we're living we're living in a, a rather fluid world that what we know today as reality is going to change because of technology, mm-hmm. because of other factors that are going on. And so that means that that answer has to also be reformulated. Mm-hmm. I have a live in call, a call in Call, what? Call in question. Call in question. No. Somebody texted in a question. Yeah, All right. is listening. Oh. <laughs> He's saying awesome, excellent podcast, great questions and answers. So he has a question. In your pursuit of knowledge, what is an example of something you are currently struggling with about Islam and what is an example of something that strengthens your faith? Well, I'm going to have to have a talk with him in Iceland about this. Um, <laughs> I love when he sends in questions. I know. You know, I don't, I don't have any struggles regarding Islam itself. Um, I, I, there, there, are, there are certain domains that I, I find to be, you know, really, really pointless to go into. I mean, I know some people want to understand God better. I mean, you're talking about something that is beyond, beyond comprehension. Uh, so that frees me up to, to, to focus on other things. One of the pretty amazing things that happened to me uh, recently was uh, last August, I had the opportunity to perform the Hajj. Uh, and uh, uh, the major uh, the pilgrimage, which is of course one of the five pillars of Islam, and uh, um, it's it's a duty on on those who are physically and financially capable of doing it. I'm explaining this for your audience, and especially for Fasahat who may not know these things. <laughs> uh, so uh, that one's for you, man. Uh, but there was a moment while I was there, and like I said, I don't consider myself to be nearly as spiritually woke as as others uh, might be. But there was this moment on really what is the culmination of the Hajj on the ninth day of the month of Hajj, which is the second day of the actual pilgrimage, where you are standing there uh, in the Valley of Arafat and you are uh, expi- uh, trying to get your sins expiated by, by offering supplication. And I had this moment where I emerged realizing how much my Islam had become Christianized. And what I mean by that is not just from a cultural level, but it's impossible when you're living within a, a more Christian-dominated zeitgeist or, 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 or worldview that the notions of things like original sin, of atonement, uh, from a Christian standpoint of fallenness don't come into your Islam. It's, it's impossible to keep it impregnable. And I had this moment where I was able to remove that. And as a result of it, the kind of clarity by which now I see Islam is completely different. So as a result of it, I think that the struggles of where does Islam fit into other uh, other dimensions no longer exist. So I think in many ways that probably answers both questions that Fasad presented, that it's not, it's not something to struggle with and in fact it is something that reinforces. And your hair grew back. 
Yes, yeah, thankfully. Shaved his head. Yes, <laughs> thankfully. He really did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I've seen pictures of that. I'm like, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you with short hair. Well, that was, oh, it was not like, just short. That was it. Was not just short, man. It was it was almost non-existent. Okay. It was it was pretty right. gone. Yeah, you know, you sort of get caught in the moment. You're thinking. I mean, the the requirement is that you have like you snip off three locks of hair. That's sort of bare minimum. Okay. But then you know when you're there, you're kind of the thinking. It's kind of like giving up moment. chips for Lent. Like, Pretty much, but not, your, not <laughs> yeah. the fact that you're a jerk. You're yeah, really and I mean, then, then you know, it kind of dawns on you while you're there. You're kind of you're you're swept in the moment. You're with you're you're with friends. You're like, hey, you know, if you're going to be a bear, you might as well be a grizzly, not a teddy. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. So we talked a little bit about um, your experiences um, as a professor, um, uh, and I was wondering, you know, what are some of the more surprising aspects? Something that's been surprising for you um, in your role as a lecturer, professor, and Shaping young minds. Um, you mean other than the power <laughs> kick? <laughs> well, I think part of it is that uh, – and I've been doing this now for, gosh, you know, 14 years. And I've also been fortunate enough to have other dimensions. It's not just teaching at Wayne State. And, of course, the diversity of different students coming in as well as sometimes the same student being able to witness and experience their evolution intellectually going forth. I mean sometimes seeing them take a class – and I am truly amazed that some of them will come back and take more punishment because, <laughs> you know, it is a matter of if you don't want to be challenged, let's face it, some of these students don't necessarily want to major in Near East and Asian studies. They're taking it uh, for a distribution requirement, but they come back. I mean, I have one uh, former student who's in pharmacy school and she was pre-farm. She just said, I really kind of dig taking your classes. I said, all right, not even Muslim. But for her, it was uh, the validation was saying when I'm doing something in the area of pharmacy, some of the ways that you taught me how to think, I use uh, as far as the methodology I'm able to use in, in, in farm school. That's really awesome to be able to hear something like that, that you are imparting knowledge that's not just about the facts and it's not just about dates because, of course, that's what most people think that historians do is just pummel you with dates, dates and names. Dates, dead people, and, places, yeah, dead places right? wars <laughs> and all. That's my jam. I'll just do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but to be able to hear people say, wow, OK, something you said – and I'm always in bewildered awe. Like you know, Calvin says, hey, it's something that you said 11 years ago that stays with me or somebody else. And I'm like – how is it that you remember or that you would take the time to remember something that I said and keep it with you, especially in this day and age where like memories are starting to fade even more and more because we're relying sure. on Siri and technology? Uh, the other is being able to teach in different places, whether it's U of M uh, or sorry, uh, University of Detroit Mercy uh, at Rochester College, which is always amazing to see uh, the interaction with evangelical students. I was telling Calvin off air that uh, in February – uh, I got to go to Switzerland where Pepperdine University has its study abroad program uh, in Lausanne, just near Geneva. Which is a sister school for Rochester College. Oh, yeah. so. And uh, John Barton, who is now at Pepperdine, puts up the bat signal. He says, hey, say, you want to go ahead and uh, come with me to Switzerland? We can do our shtick over there. And then from oh. there, we're going to take the students to Morocco. I'm like, Morocco, wow. never been. Cool. Uh, but to to interact with uh, evangelical Christian students, some of whom it came up to me after, you know, said never met a Muslim, never came mm -hmm. this close to meeting a Muslim. Uh, we're, uh, this is really cool. Uh, having that kind of opportunity is remarkable. I always like to say that some people will view academics and the relationship between instructor and and student as being transactional. It's better to have a transformative 
uh, and a transformational relationship. And uh, two weeks ago, I was back in Switzerland, uh, back in um, in Montreux, and I was changing trains, and I spot two of the students from Lausanne. And I said, well, wow, fancy seeing you here. And they said, you know, we recognized your voice, but we're wondering what is he doing back in Switzerland? And it was just this amazing uh, uh, reunion at, at a train station to see two people and to hear that things that you talked about two months ago was such a big deal to them. Yeah. Wow. You know, so you mentioned something that's uh, kind of interesting to me, just in, in terms of how I've approached academia. Uh, when I was in college, I was both tra- – I, at the time, preferred transactional. Uh, and by transactional, it means I'm paying a certain amount of money. You are a professor, which means you profess to know something. So I am <laughs> paying you for that professed knowledge, right? And it, it's interesting – but I got there when I was 25. So you know, most people who were – at college at that point, we're 17, 18 years old. Median age is, you know, 20. Uh, and so I got there and it, it it's funny. I didn't like John Barton when I was there, um, mainly because most of the students would say things like, ah, I really love his personality, the way that he makes things come alive. And it it bothered me because I felt like I'm not really getting much. I'm not getting much from this guy. And then there was this other guy, Mel Storm, who was the most boring professor by any standard and by everybody's uh, perception of him. But I said, I like him because he's giving me the knowledge Mm -hmm. that I'm paying for. Now, on the flip side of that, now that I'm outside of the the college experience and, you know, having majored in religion and now I'm mentoring this, uh, this young guy named Joe, he's a new Christian and we meet on Tuesday nights and he has lots of questions. And, People like John Barton and another guy by the name of Rex Hamilton and sometimes um, uh, Keith Huey would never give me answers. And I knew they had answers. And it was frustrating. And so now I have this guy who I'm who I'm mentoring and he's like, look, I'm at this church and they said this thing about women and I'm thinking about leaving because I think that women should be in ministry. And I was like, cool. Before you do that, because you're pretty invested in the life of this faith community, why don't we sit down with a woman and she can give her perspective on it. And then we can have you sit down with a guy who doesn't agree with women in ministry. And you can do that. I'm not going to give you answers because I can give you my answer. I'm not telling him this. I could give you my answer, but then you're not working this out for yourself. It's not becoming mm-hmm. real for yourself. And so now on the flip side of things, I I still love Amel Storm because I did pay a lot of money for that degree. But I also appreciate the approach of a John Barton, the approach of a Keith Huey, the approach of a Rex Hamilton, not giving you easy answers and letting you kind of work out your faith um, on your own, figuring things out on your own intellectually and spiritually. And so uh, now I'm more, I'm, I'm probably 50-50 on this. I'm, I'm still very transactional because don't pretend you don't know anything. There's a reason you're a professor. Right? There's yeah. a reason you got hired and I'm not hired. Um, but also I really like that whole transformational aspect uh, of of things as well, but I, I want to talk about one last thing, uh, real quick. You you have been on a number of television shows, kind of like you said. You you started the think tank. You went back for for the history degree to kind of shore that all up, and now you've been on many many television programs. You used to do a radio show as well. So talk talk about being a talking head. What purpose, for lack of a better term, that's what we know it as, right? Um, what purpose has that served uh, in terms of your faith community and your faith walk? Boy, um, and you know, I like the band, the Talking and you, Heads. And you have six minutes mm-hmm. to answer this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you know, like I said, 
great band, The Talking Heads. So that's, <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Um, these are um, it, it's it's there's an irony that's involved that uh, and maybe even a paradox that when I started doing what I'm doing now, uh, I didn't expect that it would take me to the places and the platforms that it did. Uh, at the same time, there was always this hope that what we would be doing, whether it was through the think tank or whatever, it would reach people. Uh, I guess you just never really know in what way it's going to do it because this is hardly a linear progression. Right. Uh, and, and, and as I said, I've, I've been extremely fortunate. Um, over the last 14 years, I've probably come close to about a million air miles. Uh, getting to go around the world, uh, and not only giving talks but also to interact with with people and to and to gain more knowledge. We don't want to alienate any of our any of our flat Earth listeners, so uh, across the Earth as well is a, is a good statement. You're okay, yeah, and and you know, uh, like maybe next time I can I, I, next time I can talk about what the view is like at the edge. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but but the idea then of feeling that you are reaching people and even if you don't get that kind of reflection back uh to to know that you've put something out there in the bloodstream and again it's a marketplace of ideas if people want to they want to take it they can if they don't that's fine uh i'm not going to feel desperate to shove it down their throats uh in order to do that but more having uh the ability to say you know what i tried uh, I tried to go ahead and correct the narrative. I tried to go ahead and provide some kind of clarification. And again, that's not just at a non-Muslim audience. Right? Mm-hmm. It is also at a Muslim audience, which I think oh, okay. in many ways, uh, I don't think there's a better word to use, it, has become traumatized by the avalanche of, uh, of, uh, of criticisms and disparagements against them. Now, some people will say, well, this is good. It'll toughen them up. It'll, uh, it'll go ahead and uh, wake them up uh, into some reality. Who knows? Uh, it is nice, though, to to have these multiple platforms. But at the end of the day, sometimes uh, I, I just like, for example, I just did a different podcast today, being on and not have to be that Muslim. Uh, it's nice to be on and talk about quirky things like the Masters uh, golf tournament and how they've banned the, the phrase dilly dilly uh, from there <laughs> because they're so stuffy or, or talking about uh, – uh, bands like Chainsmokers or or the Smiths or uh, or uh, why the Clash was the only band that matters. That's part of me too, and I am a Muslim, and I am a Muslim mm-hmm. who listens to the Smiths and the Clash and can go ahead and mm-hmm. talk about these things. I and, went to a U two concert with a bunch of Muslims, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. Salami, I was like, I, you know, I I, I I I would have, but I was at Hajj. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was like, wait, he was being there? he was being a good Muslim. <laughs> we were all rocking out with Bono. <laughs> well, Bono does mean good, so True there story. you go. Okay. All right, yeah. So, um, oh, I have two things I was going to say, and now I forgot. Oh, and no, I was going to say, just I mean, it's not just the students. Um, and actually, I remember something that you talked about on one of the panels that you were at on at our mosque, talking about just, and this really resonated with me, just how you, you know, I don't believe Wayne State has like a chaplain. Almost like as a counselor. I mean, so many of the Muslim students come to you, and yeah. they really yeah. just talk Muslim, to you a Muslim, lot about Muslim and non-Muslim students. I mean, they come to me, and I'm always bewildered and saddened to think that I've got to be the last person on their list. That they don't feel comfortable <laughs> going to a faith leader, they don't feel comfortable going to family, uh, going to university professor has got to be you know down there near uh, I don't know 
I don't even know, librarian uh, to, to go ahead and interact with. But you see the need uh, that so many of our young people have. And I mean, you should know this as somebody who's a child psychiatrist. That communication in a, in a world that's becoming infre- uh, increasingly uh, impersonal is so vital. And uh, I think one of the comments I made is that we put young people in opposition mm-hmm. of forces, theology versus biology, and biology is going to win 10 out of 10 times. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting things on polar opposites, I think we really then have this challenge to go ahead and reconcile. And that's why I don't feel as though Islam should be a struggle. It is, I think, an artificially made struggle for people because of the way that they frame it in their day-to-day lives and that around of people around them. Wow. Um, and also what you what were talking about, just this uh, idea of transactional versus transformative and um, your experiences as a student, Calvin, that actually really kind of resonated with me too. It makes me think of uh, patients and clients that come even for care for mental health um, treatment. And so many times I'll have patients that come back that have been in, you know, gone to a few sessions of therapy and they're like, yeah, but they're not really exactly telling me what to do. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I need more um, strategies of like how to do this or that. And that's very similar in the sense that, yeah, we can tell you what to do, but it takes and it takes time, but it's much more powerful and impactful when you think right about it own. and you're reflecting yep. and you come to those realizations on your own. Well, that's also predicated, uh, Sabah, on the fact that they're telling you everything in the first place. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, tell you right now, if I went to a psychiatrist, I would tell my wife, hey, before we go in, here are the things that we cannot talk about. <laughs> Yeah. Well, 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 even oh, the off limit things, even even if not intentionally, I mean, because of trauma, uh, people sometimes yeah. are silent, exactly, mm-hmm. and so that then becomes a challenge. And so you can provide uh, sort of a range of things instead of a uh, a to do list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, very cool, awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Saeed, for being here. Always love talking to you, and I'm really glad and fortunate that we had this opportunity to kind of document this conversation and i love seeing you guys at it calvin and say this is <laughs> we really should do a cool. show together i know <laughs> yeah just make this a regular thing <laughs> you know what I'll, I'll love to come back on that's what we were trying to organize this and i was like calvin i mean if i'm not available it's okay you guys could do the show <laughs> alone. You guys, it's pretty cool just w- listening to you too um but um yeah just wrapping up just want to thank everybody for tuning in and i didn't have a chance to thank jess for being here Hi, Jess. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And again, um, just please check out our Facebook page for all of our past episodes and share, um, uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and iHeartRadio and wherever else we're at, our website. Um, And looking forward to another episode here on Unsung Heroes. We'll see you next time. Bye.